Furthermore, the equation E is equal mc square. And here's the discovery. I'm gonna make him an offer again. Welcome to another Cheeky Scientist radio podcast. I am Isaiah Hankel with Cheeky Scientist. We have a great show for you today. This is the radio show for PhDs who want to get hired into their first or next job in industry and who want to thrive in business. Thank you for joining us. Here we go. Hello and welcome to another Cheeky Scientist radio show. I am Isaiah Hankel with Cheeky Scientist. I'm very excited for today's show. We are talking about brain hacks that get PhDs hired with Dr. Robert Carter III. Uh, we are going to be bringing on uh, Dr. Robert Carter for our special leadership interview. Uh, before that, of course, we do the show me the data section. And before that, we're going to jump into the PhD advantage section, which I'll go into here in just a minute. We also have internal interviews. We're going to be talking about uh, different career paths. Uh, that you can take as a PhD. We have a couple of interviews lined up after our interview with Dr. Carter. So make sure you stay tuned for today's show. I want to go over a few upcoming items from Cheeky Scientists, some of them in progress. This week, we have a very special enrollment for our most popular advanced program, Scientist MBA. And I'm showing it here on my screen for those of you that are here by video. Scientist MBA is open until this Friday. There is, of course, the reduced enrollment pricing for Scientist MBA. This program is all about getting you into a management track, into a management level position in industry. That's that senior level, that principal level, not a Scientist One or Engineering One, uh, for example. Because if you get into an entry level track position to start with your PhD, on average, it takes you five to eight years to get into a management track position. Scientist MBA will change all that for you and ensure you get into a management track position because you can, as a PhD, get into this position. You should not be working side by side or beneath somebody with their bachelors in these STEM positions. So Scientist MBA will ensure that you get into a management level or senior level position instead. We also have a very special webinar. This is a brand new webinar that we've never done before. How to get hired as a project manager in industry. I've been working with a senior project manager uh, who's international, has broad experience, currently working in New York City to develop this very special webinar on project management. So forget everything you think you know about non-PhD project management certifications programs. Forget everything you think you know about project management in industry in general and sign up for this webinar. Go to cheeky scientist slash PMC dash how to become a project manager. For those of you listening by audio, or you can just search Cheeky Scientist PMC, how to get, a, get hired as a project manager. This will be happening Thursday, February 27th at 2.30 Eastern. And we'll get this changed here. Lisa, this is 2.30 PM Eastern. So make sure you sign up for that. You'll get your confirmation email as well. For those of you interested in Scientist MBA and you're listening by audio, that was smba.cheekyscientist.com. I also want to mention a brand new article that we have out at Cheeky Scientist, Three Things PhDs Must Know to Become Project Managers. This is one of our top trending articles right now. It's brand new. 
It talks about everything that you need to understand about project management versus other R&D roles, for example. Project management in R&D or outside of R&D, it's all covered in this article. Just go to cheekyscientist.com slash blog and you, you will see it as our newest article. Now, I want to talk to you briefly about your PhD advantage. This is something we do at the beginning of every single radio show. It's important for you to understand as a PhD that you have key transferable skills that will get you hired. PhD advantages that we've talked about in the past is your ability to learn very quickly. Information processing, this is something that you need to talk about during interviews because one of the first things an employer is gonna be concerned about is your onboarding, uh, your ability to learn on the job. You have an advantage here. We've also talked about other key competencies and skills such as research. Most of you don't even mention that you are skilled. You're at the expert level in research, in data and information collection. We've also talked about analysis, your ability to analyze data and information. Another one that I wanna talk about is content creation. So in the world of business right now, Content is king. You've likely heard that phrase. It was coined uh, by Google uh, quite a while ago, and it's still true. As PhDs, you've learned to create an immense amount of content very quickly, very dense content. Most things that you're going to do in industry are going to re require some sort of content creation. You're going to have to write. Um, you're going to have to generate content of some kind. Now, of course, there's a spectrum of this. Uh, there's a lot of writing-intensive positions, such as... Uh, positions that we call medical writing. It's an umbrella, which could mean on-label writing for a ph pharmaceutical company. There could be off-label uh, positions. You could write white papers uh, for a company. Um, but no matter what role you get into, including project management, which we just talked about, you're going to have to write. And a lot of PhDs don't see this as a valuable skill. They don't write uh, content creation on their resume. They don't write uh, oral presentation or uh, creating slide decks. My first industry job, I had to create so many slide decks. Every meeting was a new slide deck, but I was very good at this and I would create my slide decks much faster than anybody else uh, who, was, who was hired alongside me because I had created so many PowerPoints in academia with much more dense content. In industry, sometimes it's just like a stock picture, right? And a title is all you have to come up with, but this is an advantage. Your ability to write for different audiences. You can write very dense uh, material uh, with the, you, you know, using the word moreover and furthermore and all the technical terms and jargon, but you can also write material for lay people. You have this advantage, even if you're not getting into a writing position, even if you hate writing, doesn't matter, you're going to be doing content creation uh, in no matter what role. Every role that I've had in industry, every role from regulatory affairs to uh, medical affairs, to medical science liaison, to data scientist. You're going to be writing reports, documenting, presenting, and it takes a lot of your time, and you should show employers that this is an advantage that you've had. You've created a thesis. You know how many people in the world have written anything that's over five pages? Less than 10%. Seriously. So make sure you're including this PhD advantage on your resumes, your LinkedIn profile, and throughout your job search. So with that, we're going to move it right along into our show me the data section. I was very excited about this show me the data section because we're talking about mindset, things that'll make you more productive, things that'll help you manage stress better. We have on with us Mary Truscott. Hi, Mary. How are you? Hi, Isaiah. I'm great. How are you? Doing very well. If you can hear Mary and see her, can you say hello, Mary, in the chat box for those of you who are with us 
as Cheeky Scientist Associates. If you're watching the live stream, you can say hi to Mary as well, uh, wherever you're watching us on Facebook or YouTube. So Mary, we're talking today about brain hacks. So what, what is a hack? Um, change it, making a change to something, interrupting, um, ch yeah, changing a system. Yeah, I like that definition better. A lot of us think a hack is like a shortcut. Um, but I don't think that's the proper way to look at it. A hack is learning to do something better, right? A better methodology um, so that the quality is improved, uh, not just saving time. And with that, we're going to go to the show me the data section here. So you should be able to see my screen. If you can, can you type in yes in the chat box? And what we're looking at in this first study is mindset and stress response. This is just gonna help you get your bearings. It's from Indeed, it's the science behind a job search. And what it's showing is, is that a job search is very stressful, all right? And this is gonna be important today because we're gonna talk about how to perceive stress differently, how to approach uh, difficult challenges differently so that you can be more productive, so you can uh, be more effective. So the, uh, the article here is just blog.indeed.com. Uh, and what we're looking at is career-related events spanning the entire spectrum of stress. So this is the actual stress that different events in your life, both career and in your personal life, cause. And so we have a spectrum here. There's green on one side, on the left side of the spectrum. For those of you listening by audio, that says there's some stress here, but it's very mild stress. And then if you go all the way to the right, it's red, a lot of stress. So... Mary, can you walk us through on the career side and the life side, some of the things that stuck out to you? Um, and then we'll end up going, going through most of them. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. There, so on the top, it's um, career changes and right below it, they'll have a comparative, uh, comparative, comparable life change. Um, just to see that simple things like a change in your work hours can mm -hmm. be a little bit stressful. I mean, obviously, so that's at the sort of lower end of the spectrum. And then at the far right, at the far end of this, the other end of the spectrum, dismissal from work. We obviously know that that's uh, a, a big <laughs> stress, a negative stress. Um, and they, you know, that's somewhere around the range of marriage um, and, and um, almost as high, I guess, as death of a close family member. So just to say that changes at work can cause stress, the amount of, of stress changes. Um, at the lower end, so change in working hours or conditions or trouble with the boss. Um, change in duties at work. So just um, just to acknowledge, I guess, that those those can actually be stressful. How you deal with that is different. I think we'll talk about that today. Um, but yeah, there's a, there's a whole spectrum. Yeah, I agree. And I, I mean, what stuck out to me is so so again, this is zero to sixty five is the highest on this scale. It's not zero to one hundred. And the and the highest that it's showing is sixty three, which is death of a, a close family member. Um, on the personal side, on the career side, it's dismissal from work at 47. And again, on a scale to 65. What was surprising is that change to a different line of work is 36, which is high, right? This is more than halfway on the scale. And I think a lot of us, we see an academic transition maybe is as daunting or confusing, or we don't really know what to expect. And that's holding us back. Because if you would approach it as something that is going to be a big challenge, that's going to take immense effort, that's going to be like a second job, it will help you. It'll help you in terms of uh, productivity. It'll help you in terms of motivation. It'll help you in terms of handling setbacks because you'll have the right expectation. 
So I think the biggest takeaway here is that changing to a different line of work is one of the most stressful things career-wise you will ever face. Are you approaching it as so, but staying positive? That's, that's the question here, and that's what we're going to go through. So if we move to the, the next study we want to look at, uh, the title is Mindset Impacts How People Manage Stressful Experiences. So this is in the European Journal of Work and Organizational Psychology. Um, we'll put the links in the post-show notes, of course, as usual. And what it, what it looked at is the implications of the stress mindset in the workplace. So there's a positive stress mindset and a negative stress mindset. We'll come back to this. And this is really just how you approach stress. So the numbers we just talked about, that's the actual stress as objectively as it can be recorded, right? So a, a 38 on a scale of 65. But how you approach that stressful event uh, will dictate your performance, what happens to you in life, and a lot of different things we're about to go through. So this is, this is a very simple figure that we're looking at on the y-axis. It's approach coping efforts. And it looks like uh, it's a scale of one to five. It looks like it's standard deviation. And on the x-axis, low workload anticipation and then high workload anticipation. And then there's people who have a negative stress mindset with a solid line and people who have a positive stress mindset. We're going to go into what both of those mean. But basically, do you approach stress positively as you can get something out of it, as you something that you can rise uh, to to face? Or is it debilitating to you. That's the negative stress response. So what, what's the major takeaway from this simple chart, Mary? Um, if you approach something with a positive mindset, you can handle the, the higher workload much better. Yeah. And what, what's the difference in the trend lines we're seeing here between these two samples? Sure. Yeah. So if you have a, a negative stress um, mindset, then your ability to handle the higher workload. So it's a, it's a positive slope. Um, and then if you have a positive, uh, positive stress mindset, sorry, I got that backwards. Um, so if you have a negative stress mindset, it's a negative slope. Um, if you have a positive stress mindset, it's positive slope. So you're able to um, handle the high workload anticipation better. Yeah. And so, you know, you might, if you're looking at this chart, and for those of you listening by audio, you'll have to take our word for it until you see it in the post show notes. Um, the, the points are, are fairly similar to close to each other, but I mean, it's standard deviation, so that makes sense. But the trends are different, right? So again, if you have that negative stress mindset, the high workload, which is a, a common stressor, you're going to perform worse. You're, gonna co you're not going to be able to cope. Your, your performance is going to go down. Your coping goes down. Your efforts go down. But if you have a positive stress mindset, you can literally rise to the occasion. You, and this is what we see happen a lot. And a lot of PhDs are like this. If it's the right kind of stress and you approach it correctly, you'll perform better. I mean, how many of you have had like really nothing to do? You don't really know maybe where your research is going or your career is going and your performance suffers because you have less to do. But then you have more uh, uh, work put on you and it's not so much that you're overwhelmed, but you have more work put on you um, it, and you find that it focuses you and it energizes you and you feel more alive because of it. I think we've all experienced that. Now, the levels are going to be different for everybody, but that's really what this is showing. So this is a front, the Frontiers of Psychology report, uh, the best of both worlds, the role of career adaptability and career competencies in students' well-being and performance. So we had to pull this in because it discusses academia. And essentially, the takeaway is, is that career adaptability and uh, career competencies, right? Like competencies like your transferable skills, um, adaptability, tra changing career paths. 
were positively related to life satisfaction more than academic satisfaction. So we're looking at a very unique type of figure here with a lot of bubbles and it's showing the p-values. Basically, the takeaway, your life satisfaction is more dictated by how adaptable you can be in your career because changes will happen and how, how well you transfer your, your career, uh, career competencies and, and transferable skills. Is this surprising to you, Mary? I mean, did you find after getting out of academia that you found like career satisfaction, life satisfaction easier? Yeah, I think because, yeah, if, if you find something that's the right fit and you adapt to that, um, then everything else can fall into place. I know some people, when they're going through the search and they haven't quite reached there, it, 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 it can be a bit of a struggle, but um, being able to make that change and find something that fits is definitely more satisfying overall. Yeah, so this, this is just to give you a little bit more hope. You, your life, according to data, you'll be more satisfied, more fulfilled in industry, in a career than in academia. You might think that's a stretch, but... We see it happen over and over again. So I, I want to show two more figures here. And I just jumped way down. I think we have time for two more. So this is a study published in Anxiety, Stress, and Coping out of Stanford. And it looked at stress based on a previous mindset. So this is one of those two-part studies where they show participants a happy face or an angry face, really a bunch of happy faces, a bunch of angry faces. And then they come back and do a second part of it where they give them a positive feedback challenge or a negative feedback challenge. On top of that, they had two types of people. Uh, the first group was uh, stress enhancing. So they got enhanced by stress. They came alive from it. They saw it as something positive to rise to the challenge, uh, so to speak, for. And then the stress is debilitating uh, group. They saw stress as just negative. We all know, you know, people who have been in this mindset and how unproductive it can be. Just, oh my gosh, this is going to be so hard. There's nothing we can do. And it's, it makes it hard to find solutions uh, with that kind of mindset. And so what they're looking at here is in a scientific way, can this be primed? And can it be, not only can it be primed, but is there something innate in these people that helps them overcome it better? Uh, so, so let's break it down. The first one, it talks about attentional bias. So this is figure A on the y-axis. We have attentional bias. This just means what are they paying attention to and how much are they paying attention to it? And this is happy faces. So they showed these two groups, happy faces, a bunch of happy faces. Then they gave them a positive feedback challenge and then a negative feedback challenge. And then the dark, uh, the darker gray here is the stress enhancing group and the lighter gray is the stress is debilitating group. Now in response to the positive feedback challenge, the stress is enhancing group, their attentional bias went into the positive. So on the Y axis, there's zero and the charts start in the middle and then there's up to, to 40. It's just a scale of uh, essentially how positively they approached this stress challenge. And so there's no surprise here. If it sounds complicated, stress is enhancing, this group became more effective after seeing a bunch of happy faces and after the positive feedback challenge, whereas the stress is debilitating group, no change. Um, the, in in uh, the negative feedback, so after the happy faces and then getting the negative feedback challenge, perceiving a threat, um, the positive group, the stress is enhancing group, no change, the stress is debilitating group, they had a change, right? So they reacted to this threat. 
they were moved by the threat. Think of it that way. Okay, Mary, does this surprise you? I know it sounds there's like two or three things going on. These are good studies, but sometimes it can be uh, complex to unravel. But really what we're seeing is the stress is enhancing people are rising to the challenge and not affected by threats. Whereas the debilitating people aren't moved by the challenge at all, <laughs> but are responding to threats. Yeah, if, if you're primed to, to handle something, you're going to handle uh, something well. Um, mm. If you're not primed to hand, handle something and it's negative, you're going to react, right? It, it's sort of you're, it's, you're primed to have this reaction one yeah. way or the other. So, so basically, if, I'm just thinking of like job change. If you're, if you're someone who sort of leans into the stress and into the change, if you're thrown mm. something, then you're going to handle, you're going to dig in and you're going to handle it. Whereas if you're someone who sort of steps back from it or, or doesn't do well. Um, yeah, exactly. And, and what are the other implications as far as how they're being primed? If you get around positive can-do people, people who see opportunities, the right kind of community who's going to support you and be positive, which let's face it is very often outside of academia when it comes to an industry job search, you're going to be more in the stress is enhancing state. You're going to be primed to rise to the challenge and you're not going to be deterred by threats, by a rejection. You're going to keep going forward. Now, the opposite is also true in figure B. It shows attentional bias on the y-axis after an angry face. So angry faces, you can equate this to negative people, a negative academic environment, a negative advisor. Uh, people telling you horror stories about how you can't get hired if you need a visa or if you don't have industry experience, all this stuff. What happens here is that if you're in a stress is enhancing state, this doesn't affect you. It doesn't deter you. It doesn't hold you back. But if you're in a stress is debilitating state and you have a, a positive challenge afterwards, which again, we're equating to your job search, um, you're going to have some movement there. All right. But really not much. The the most important part of this figure is when it, they have the secondary uh, negative feedback uh, or threat challenge, right? So in this case, think of a threat as getting a rejection. Now, if you see a bunch of angry faces, if you're surrounded by negativity, even if you're in a stress as enhancing state, this is going to negatively affect you. It shows the graph going down in terms of attentional bias. But if your stress is debilitating, if, you're, if that's the mindset that you're in, it's about double. You're going to have double the negative effects. So you're going to be, you're going to take four days to recover from that rejection. If you're in a stress is debilitating state, then, then two days or four hours rather than two hours. Mary, any final thoughts? Uh, yeah, just whatever you can do to get into that, that state where you're yeah. going to lean into the stress um, because we can just see right here how it can impact you. Yeah, and this, and this is a, a, a bit more complex than we usually go over in the radio show, but it's very important for you to understand. Just remember that the people you're surrounding yourselves with, whether it's a positive environment, a negative environment, this is going to prime you um, in terms of how you handle a challenge that's a positive challenge or something purely negative, like a, a rejection in, in your job search. Um, and then if you can get into that stress-enhancing mindset yourself, because it does rely on you too, you have to make a decision to see the stress as positive. I'm gonna go into my job search, I'm gonna lean in, and I'm gonna really focus on unraveling it. It's just knowledge, it's just information, it's just a sequence, it's just a protocol, versus I don't know how to do this, I'm overwhelmed, I don't have time, I gotta make my advisor happy, and so forth. One last figure I wanna show. So there was a, a next part of the study where they, they showed participants a three minute video that discussed both the positive and the negative impacts of 
a stress mindset. Those that have a stress as enhancing mindset after this video showed an increase in the stress mindset measure, which is, are you seeing stress as positive? Well, those who saw stress as diminishing or stress is debilitating, they had a, a lower measure after the video. So again, the things you're surrounding yourself with uh, can affect you, but it's also a bit innate. It's your decision because both of these groups of people saw uh, the same video explaining how stress can be positive or stress can be negative. The people that were this, the, in the stress is enhancing group, they saw it as positive. They locked on to what was positive. And that's what you have to do in your job search. Just keep seeing new opportunities, new possibilities. We, we call it the power of next. Somebody won't reply to you after multiple times reaching out, go to the next person. Don't just focus on one job lead, go after multiple job leads at the same time. If you find yourself in this stress is debilitating state, pull yourself out of it on your own by making a decision and by getting around people that are out of it as well. Any final thoughts, Mary? Yeah, no, I think you summed it up right. And if you, yeah, and also surround yourself by positive people. I think that's no matter what, no matter what your tendency yeah. is, right? Yeah. yeah why, why do you think that is? I mean, I, obviously the study talks about priming, but I think you can also, it's the same reason we go to journal clubs or we have lab meetings or meetings with other TAs is because other people can see opportunities that you can't, right? You only have two eyes, two ears, your experiences, and other people might have a positive experience. They might say, oh, well, have you tried this? Or, oh, this happened to me too. And I was able to get back on my feet in a day, or I was able to use it in this way. Anything to add? Oh, I think you summed it up well. <laughs> All right. Please I'm say excited thank for the guest. <laughs> yeah, me too. Thank Please say thank you to Mary in the chat box, if you would, for coming on. And thank you for being here for the Show Me the Data section. So we're going to move forward to our first guest, our very special leadership guest. I'm very excited to introduce Dr. Robert Carter III showing uh, Dr. Carter on the screen here. Um, he is a U.S. Army officer and an adjunct professor and a best-selling author. Uh, he's an expert in integrative human physiology and performance and has academic appointments in emergency medicine at the University of Texas Health Science Center in San Antonio in public health and health sciences at Los Angeles Pacific University, as well as in nutrition at the University of Maryland. He has completed military assignments around the world and the White House as a military social aide for the Obama administration. He holds a doctorate in biomedical sciences and medical physiology. He's a master of public health in chronic disease epidemiology and serves on several scientific editorial boards, is a reviewer for 14 scientific and medical journals, and is a fellow of the American College of Sports Medicine and the American Institute of Stress, so that's F-A-C-S-M and F-A-I-S, if you're wondering what those acronyms were after his, his name. He has published more than 100 peer-reviewed articles, book chapters, abstracts, and technical reports, um, including those in the New England Journal of Medicine, the Journal of the American Medical Association, and is the author of The Morning Mind. So I'm going to show his LinkedIn page here. We'll put this in the post-show notes. Go give him a big, cheeky welcome on LinkedIn. Make sure... Uh, that you're, you're sending him a message on LinkedIn as well. I'm going to make sure we connect too. This is his website, The Morning Mind. Go to themorningmind.com, incredible website. Um, you can see his books, everything that he's accomplished. Uh, you can learn about his methodology. You can see he has uh, reviews here from everyone from Gay Hendricks, Jack Canfield, uh, author of the uh, Chicken Soup for the Soul series, and, and many other people. Um, and then you can go to barnesandnoble.com or amazon.com 
and get his book now, The Morning Mind. This is an incredible book, and I love the cover, by the way. Um, anything with a brain on it. And uh, this is The Morning Mind, Use Your Brain to Master Your Day and Supercharge Your Life. So with that, we're going to bring on Dr. Robert Carter III. Please give him a warm, cheeky scientist radio show welcome. Good to see you on. Dr. Yes, Carter. how are you doing? I, thanks again for the invitation. This, this is great. Yeah, it's great to have you on with us. Quite the view behind you. Thank you for being here. Um, so whenever, whenever we have a guest on who has a book, I always have to ask, because I know what a monumental effort it is. Why did you write this book? What, I guess, what, what were you so passionate about or what do you think the world needed that, that gave you the, the motivation to sit down and complete it? Yeah, yeah, really it came from the motivation of the world. Family members, uh, colleagues, you know, just, just friends and family that often as a scientist, you know, uh, you get asked questions, you know, especially being an integrated physiologist, you get asked questions, you know, uh, related to health, you know, how do I, you know, eat better? And so it really, it's really a culminating, uh, um, uh, it's a book that really culminated a lot of discussions that I've had with family members and really helping them apply evidence to uh, maybe different diets they were, uh, they were considering or even um, things that they were told by their doctor or nutritionist is really helping, you know, friends and family. And I, and I realized that there was a significant need. One of the advantages that we have as, as, as PhD scientists, as scientists, is that we have an important role, not only to, to, uh, to publish in the peer review literature, but to, you know, take that knowledge and apply it uh, to, to the general population. So that's why I wrote the book, really. It was it's really a, uh, just an opportunity to communicate um, science as a scientist uh, in a way that was evidence-based. I was muted there for a second. No, I, I love that. And I love that you're able to um, distill a lot of this complex information down into uh, something that the, you know, really the a larger audiences could read. Um, and I think all of us now, we, we really like the idea of making our brain perform better. I mean, really just in the last 10 years, right? It's just become a phenomenon in terms of people reading about this. How do I become more productive? How, how do I become more uh, emotionally regulated, et cetera? So what are, what are some of the key takeaways from the book? Like the, the large, I don't want to bury the lead here. So what are some of the, the biggest takeaways that you could tell people who are going through stressful situations like changing a career path? or maybe dealing with a, diff, a difficult environment currently in academia, what are some things they could do right now? Yeah, the number one thing, you know, uh, is to be with it. You know, if you think about often when we get into a situation where we're stressed or we're faced with some challenge, we, we, we tend to resist it. But, but really the way it's like, you know, I always describe like if you're in a, if you're in a, in a, in a river and you're stuck and you fight, you know, you just, but, but if you let the river take you, that's the best way to survive. And I would say, you know, we're in a situation where, where it's truly factors that are outside of our control is mm -hmm. to be with it. Because what, we, what that allows us to do is to better regulate our stress. And then that translates to finding creative ways to overcome that, that obstacle. And I think when, you know, again, you know, be with it and, and really try and look for opportunities to create space between you and whatever you're going through. So, you know, if you're having a stressful time in a laboratory, I remember as, as a PhD student, you know, really struggling, how am I gonna finish my dissertation? And in mm -hmm. college, I, I, um, 
I was a, I was a track athlete. So I just, but I never took that time to integrate the two. So what I begin to do is really just go for a walk, go for a run, you know, just try and create space between the day. And what you'll find is that, you know, those, the, those creative solutions, you know, ways to actually overcome whatever you're, whatever you're faced um, with will, 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 will present itself. So, you know, creating space and just being with whatever you're going through. No, I love both of those things. Um, you know, being with it, it's for those of you who, you know, if you've given a, you've had to give your first public uh, talk about your research, right? If you get really nervous and you try to fight it, it makes it very, very hard, right? It becomes more difficult. You get, I guess, more, you know, more physical symptoms. Uh, but if you just accept it uh, and you channel, I guess, that those, those nerves, that anxiety into maybe energy, et cetera, uh, if you, you know, be with it, as uh, Dr. Carter saying, um, that is something that'll help you. And I, I also like that you said, I also like what you said about creating space. I think a lot of us as PhDs, we think, I just got to work harder. No breaks, back to the lab or back to my dissertation, whatever it is, that's the problem is I'm not doing enough and I got to do more. Exactly. And we don't ever think to do less. We don't ever think to, well, it's not really doing less, but we don't ever think to do something different, to go for a walk, to talk to a friend. We think I, I'm clearly not working hard enough. So what, you know, as a, as a PhD yourself, what, are, what would you recommend for giving yourself permission to do that? Right, if you have people that are really resistant to thinking that they could ever take a break. Yeah, yeah, what I recommend is just, you know, we all have five minutes, you know, so even if that is just five minutes, if you're gonna just like, you know, eat, um, you know, giving yourself permission to, you know, first of all, try eating. I know I used to take my lunch into the lab, you know, and, and you just wanna be, or if you, uh, you know, you say, well, I'll read an article while I eat. That's the first step is just, you know, just taking 10 minutes, 15 minutes, and just being 100%, you know, with eating. And I think if you start off with something that you have to do anyway, but yeah. doing it 100%, what you'll find is that that is enough of, a, you know, a break, you know, being able to separate your, yourself from work and, and just enjoying that. And then, and then I think you can progress into, um, you know, one of the things I personally um, incorporated into my life probably about 10 years ago is just some, you know, breathing techniques and, you know, meditation, mindfulness, something to really allow yourself for 10 or 15 minutes a day, you know, just to unplug. And I'll tell you, um, initially I said, I don't have time for that. But what you, what you begin to find is that that actually somehow that, that, that manifests as, as more time, you know, because again, it's really about unplugging and just really giving yourself permission. So, so, so again, you know, just really, uh, Finding something that you're going to do already, but being a hundred percent with it, it, mm -hmm. it is, is something that should be quite easy for most of us to give ourselves permission to do. You know, because yeah. we, we don't have to give ourselves permission to eat because it's a it's something that we have to do. But but being a hundred percent with it is something that's the middle ground between um, forcing yourself to do something versus something that you have to do anyway. Yeah, and it seems like a simple concept, but I, I can tell you, I mean, that exact example is me and probably every PhD. Every time I was going to eat, I was like, I'm going to read articles. I'm going to squeeze something in, but I became less productive because of it and like more stressed out. And I finally said, no, I'm just going to eat and stare at the wall or read something completely different. And it is enough. I mean, even like you said, like 15 minutes, I mean, it, it's how your brain operates. And that's really what, where I want to go next is, so can you tell us a little bit about 
you know, given your, your background, how many different career transitions you've gone through, this is something you're an expert at is regulating uh, your, your brain, your emotions to be able to handle these challenges and to be able to, like we were going in the show me the data section to, to go into that stress is enhancing state. So what are the, you know, the hacks or what are the, the things that we may not know, the better methodologies for, for doing this? Uh, how can we organize ourselves to face challenges such as a job search uh, with, um, where, where we rise to the occasion and we don't uh, see it as debilitating? Yeah, you know, it's fascinating. You know, this is something I learned just by accident. Maybe, uh, but, but really the key, um, and I think everybody will recognize I don't know if you've ever um, taken a drive. You went off and you said, okay, I'm going to go, I'm going to take a drive. And this may be before we had, you know, um, GPS and phone, but you, know, you, you took the map and, and you took, got as much information as you possibly could to sort of visualize what that trip was going to uh, encounter. So you gathered information so that, you know, because you knew that you were not going to be able to look every at the map every, and so you created that environment that, that that what 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 you were going to encounter and i would say that's that is really the key that's the that's the essence of i think um living life um we always will encounter stress but for us to to minimize the impact of what the future entails is really um visualizing and actually taking an input so so for example why 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 you're a phd student sort of you know, thinking about, you know, careers and what it would be like to, to work in industry, you know, and then maybe even taking some opportunities to learn more yes. about that environment and think about kind of visualize and, and just take the time to say, okay, what would it be like to work as a, an academic professor in a research setting or a teaching setting? So, mm -hmm. so again, just, you know, familiarizing your mind and, and, and forcing your mind almost into that synthetic space or that virtual space really will, it, it really does amazing things. So I spend quite a bit of time, you know, I rarely will go into a space uh, or a scenario without spending some time visualizing what, what it's going to be like. And, that, and then what that helps you do is um, deal with any anxiety that, that may be produced as a result of that. It's, it's amazing, you know, if we put our brain into a familiar situation, there's a lot of neuroscience, a lot of good data on this. If we put ourselves into a familiar situation it really reduces the stress, anxiety, improves our performance, and helps us make actually better choices. I love that. And uh, there's a lot, a lot of research on this now. I mean, some people call it mental modeling. Uh, but exactly. So on a very practical level, like you said, it could be in the morning, getting up and walking through visually what's going to happen that day. Alternative scenarios and how you're going to stay calm, focused, be able to make great decisions. Five minutes in the morning walk through your calendar. There's a, a big study just came out about how the world's best pilots who have uh, avoided disasters. The one thing that they have in common is they'll sit down with their pilot teams before every flight and walk through a mental model of what if this happens or this goes wrong, et cetera. And I think that's what you're talking about. I mean, can you break down a little bit more why that what's happening in our brains when we do that? How is it? Because there's even research out there that has shown people who visualize will have some of the same physiological responses or even growth that if they actually did that like golfers and stuff so what what's happening in our brain when we visualize like that yeah yeah so so if you think about you know um the uh the importance of the of our of our hippocampus our, our limbic system and, it, and and its interaction you know with 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 our overall um 
with our overall cranial nerves in, in, that, in, that, um, in, in, the, in, in the amygdala and, and how it plays such a role in, in, in how we perceive uh, situations, whether we perceive it as a nourishing or not nourishing situation. So, 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 so by really going through um, uh, those scenarios, if, 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 you, if you recall, the limbic system plays such an important role in memory. So it's interesting enough, the brain um, really uh, has a difficult time uh, differentiating what is actually real and what's fake, right? So if you actually walk through it, walk through those, you know, through those steps, you're uh, essentially um, uh, creating those neural networks to be able to actually perform that task or, or, or experience something in the future as if you experienced it in reality. Yeah. And actually, a lot of the work that we're, that's coming out in particular in virtual reality, and, and the military is using virtual reality more and more to basically expose soldiers to various types of scenarios um, before they actually encounter those environments. So, and I think in, 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 the, medical, um, in the medical world, a lot of uh, um, uh, surgical teams, as you described, I, I've worked a lot with in the medical simulation space and again, creating that synthetic uh, environment, a synthetic rehearsal environment, um, uh, again, allows those teams to better function. And individual members, you can work in a virtual space on specific tasks. So when the team or individuals come into collective uh, training or, or, or operational, meaning they're actually performing a, uh, a complex surgical procedure, um, each of their brains um, are basically their limbic systems are networked together. Amazing. I love that synthetic rehearsal. And I mean, if there are people, you know, where the stakes are very high, surgical teams, military professionals doing this, how, how much more can you use this for uh, interview? Rehearse the interview, rehearse the phone screen, what can come up? Like actually walk it through in your, your brain. It can be hard to get another person with you to do mock interviews, et cetera. That's important, but just that rehearsal process, like Dr. Carter is saying, is very valuable. So you've talked about the limbic system, different parts of our brain, and there's all kinds of frameworks that are, that are thrown around today, um, uh, you know, metaphors uh, for the brain, like the, the reptilian brain, the mammal brain, the monkey brain, all this different stuff, right? So you talk about the reptilian brain. And so what is this, and why is it so crucial to understand? And then finally, how can you overcome that basic part of your brain to perform under stress? Yeah, so, so one of the things I talk about quite a bit in the book and uh, is, is, the, is the reptilian brain, which is the older portion of our brain that's really important for uh, keeping us in, in, a, in a, helping us survive. You know, it's, the, it's, the, it's the automatic portion, reflex, basically keeping us safe. But one of the challenges um, that we have is uh, we, when we become stressed or in, or in situations that are repetitive, uh, we, we can often uh, get into a situation where we rely too heavily on the reptilian brain. And as, as PhDs that, you know, at least folks in the, that, that are more used to working in laboratories, it can become, uh, we become very comfortable in mm -hmm. our space. And I really enjoyed July's show. It's so important for us to really break out of that, uh, that mold. And, 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 but, but it's important for us to really begin to tap into the, it, it, to really hack into the wizard portion of our brain. That's something we talk a lot about in the book and, yeah. and, and using various tools that when we, um, as we hack into our 
uh, in, in, into our uh, cerebral cortex, you know, that creative portion of our brain that we, that we really depend on heavily and that we really uh, nourish and develop as, as PhDs. But, but often we, we're human, so we can easily revert back, you know, to uh, living from a space of fear and the unknown. And I would say in today's world uh, where, um, where, where, where funding may be limited in certain disciplines, and I really love the fact that you talked about individuals getting out of their normal career fields, getting into the, the, the uh, project managers as you know, R&D managers. That really is an opportunity um, for, 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 for um, PhD scientists to really branch off into those disciplines. But one of the factors that limit many scientists from taking that step or PhDs is, is fear. And, and so again, really hacking and and, and, and leveraging tools, as I described before, creating space, um, finding breath-based meditation or some ways to help us recognize and, and, and improve our ability to censor when we're getting into that, 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 that lizard, that, that sense where we're living from a, from, a, from a space of fear is just so critical. Um, so yeah. yeah, it's really balancing, hacking into the wizard and really silencing the lizard was something that we talked quite a bit about in the book. Yeah, I love that, that, that uh, silencing the lizard in the wizard brain. And it, it really goes hand in hand with what we were talking about earlier in getting in that stress is enhancing mindset or stress is debilitating. For, I mean, for me, if, you know, I think we all know what it's like to get into that lizard mindset, that reptilian mindset. We get super stressed. And then again, as PhDs, we get more dominant and we work harder. We get like super focused and we think we have to just cut out everything else and just work, work, work more. And, you know, even I think be harsher on ourselves and other people because we're used to being critical of the data. So we just turn into being critical of everything. Um, whereas the wizard, uh, the, you know, accessing the wizard part of your brain, it comes down to really getting into that discovery mindset. What's possible? What's the, what's, what am I not seeing? What's the opportunity here? And that's what I love about your book is it really maps that out and it does so at a PhD level. I, I really recommend all of you getting it. Last question I want to ask is because we're talking about brain hacks. What are some of your favorite ones, right? Maybe they're just simple, small things. You know, we talked about the broader concepts, but is there anything super practical that you really like or that's your go-to under a stressful situation or any other type of situation? Yeah, yeah. So, so one of, one of the, uh, the things that I, um, that I will do, again, if I'm, even if I'm in a meeting, you know, uh, you know, obviously if I'm in a meeting, I can't go for a walk. I will just, um, just visualize my self-remove from the situation. And, and I think it's something you can very, um, with, with practice, you can really master. But, but you, I don't know if you've been in a meeting where it's, in, where it's, the, 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 uh, it's becoming increasingly tense. Yes. And you feel yourself almost like in a straight jacket. You know, you, everybody is just, you just can't figure out how we're gonna get to yes. Hmm. And, and what, what I, what I, really begin to practice. I was like, well, I can't go, I can't start doing breath-based meditation, can't close my eyes, can't go for a walk, but, but, but how can I extract myself from the moment? And, and, and really just, again, the, the visualization and really being able to, to unplug from that situation um, and, and really uh, withdrawing your senses, you know, mm. practice really withdrawing your senses without obviously closing your eyes just picking a point on the wall or picking a point on the table, you know, where it's not as obvious and really just withdrawing your senses um, from the situation will 
again, allow you to create enough, enough, um, enough distance and space from the situation. And, and often, you know, it's amazing when, when uh, it's how, it really demonstrates that we're all connected. It's what you find when, when you begin to withdraw yes. from the situation, it's almost like dominoes. It's just something is something happens yes. in that environment where, where you begin to see um, other people, you know, sort of uh, are able to withdraw. And often some of them say, why don't we just take a break? But, but sometimes it's, if you verbalize, let's take a break. Um, that doesn't always work. So, so again, really, like I said, just withdrawing yourself. And then, and then the next step obviously is really, um, uh, taking, whether it's five minutes of just, you know, one of the things I, I do, um, is just, you know, just eyes closed and there's a technique called alternate nostril breathing. So it's just basically blocking one nostril, breathing out and then breathing out and then in just five minutes of alternate nostril breathing a box breathing or, or whatever the breathing uh, is of, of your choice is something that we actually voluntarily um, uh, can control mm -hmm. as well as is under our autonomic nervous system. So I think that is really the breath is really the way that we're able to really hack, you know, mm -hmm. into, uh, into changing situations and making life uh, more fulfilling. Obviously you can do that as well in a meeting, you know, in a less obvious way, just if you feel yourself, you know, just breathing, uh, uh, kind of anxiety, sharp and rigid, just calming your breath down is another powerful way to help unplug from the situation. I can, yeah, I love what you said about the domino effect, because you're right. Uh, we hear about adding energy to a negative situation. Sometimes you can just remove it by stop paying it by zoning out. I mean, seriously, that's basically what it is. And then everybody else is like, I'm not getting the engagement I need, you take a break and people can come back in a different mental state. So Really fantastic. Uh, incredible, incredible insights and interview. Thank you very much, uh, Dr. Carter. Please thank Dr. Carter in the chat box if you would. We're going to put all of the links in the show flow notes to his website, to his book. If you're watching this right now, go get his book. It's one of the best books that I've read on this, and it's written at the PhD level. Excellent frameworks, excellent research. The Morning Mind. Use your brain to master your day and supercharge your life. Thank you. Dr. Thank you. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Have a great day. All right. Excellent. I love, I love what Dr. Carter said about uh, zoning out. It really does work. For those of you who might be in difficult situations with difficult uh, advisors, supervisors, and so forth, um, sometimes just withdrawing and disengaging a little bit. Uh, not so much that they think that you're ignoring them, obviously. I mean, you're not shutting your eyes, et cetera, but it can really help. Uh, I, I remember when I was going through a particularly tense time with my advisor and I, I had been in grad school for five years and I, I couldn't graduate. He, he wouldn't let me graduate. And they turned into, it was after uh, 2008, one of the worst times in terms of uh, overall uh, grant funding, very difficult time. Lots of labs were closing and uh, our meetings, our weekly meetings turned into basically just a, a session, a berating session. And I know some of you have been through this and what I, would do that helped and it seems super silly and I don't think I've ever shared it before is because I read it in a, a book about this zoning out tactic is I would imagine uh, going to I would, I would imagine whitewater rafting right like so every every time I was berated I would just imagine going through waves and I'd actually even pick up my feet off the floor which helped and there's there's some uh, there's some research behind this, this picking up your feet off the, the floor, which we'll have to get into later, but uh, it really did help. 
And so sometimes just re, with, re, withdrawing your energy in terms of your attentional energy can really help diffuse a, a stressful situation. So great interview. Very, very thankful to have on uh, Dr. Carter. Are you a PhD student or postdoc who wants to get an industry job? Are you tired of being paid one third or less of what you are worth in academia, but you don't know where to start? Maybe you've been uploading resumes over and over again, but you haven't heard anything back from an employer. Go to phdsgethired.com and get our free materials on how to get hired in industry. All you have to do is go to phdsgethired.com put in your name and email address, and we will send you our resume guide, our networking scripts, and our other free trainings to help you start your job search now. Again, just go to phdsgethired.com. Uh, next, we're going to jump into our uh, meeting with, I think, who do we have next? We have Ramya coming on first. Mary Lisa, are we bringing on? Um, Guillaume is next. Guillaume. All right, let's bring on Guillaume. And then we'll, we have Rami, who will come on too. Very excited to talk to, to both of you. Thank you for waiting. So Guillaume is here with us. And Guillaume's going to talk to us about his role as an account manager in industry. So this is our special internal career interview. Good to see you on, Guillaume. How are you? Hello. Good to see you. Thanks for the invite. <laughs> yeah, thanks for being here. So you are an account manager. What is that? I am. Well, I guess there are different ways to go about it, but the, the, the way I like it is becoming a close contact of the customers, like almost becoming a buddy of these scientists, learning what they work on, what their challenges are, and if it's a company, maybe what are their expansion plans and things that are likely to, to matter a lot to them and based on that, uh, help them by offering them solutions that are services or products of your company mainly, but mostly focusing on, on helping them as, a, as an equal, I would say. Yeah, and I, I love that description. It's basically about building relationships with other yeah. high-level <laughs> technical people, scientists, engineers, PhDs. It could be MDs, depending on uh, what role you're getting into. And I would say this is the most under-targeted, under-targeted, uh, role or type of role in industry right now for PhDs. Mm -hmm. Un the most under-targeted and often pays the most. And most PhDs yeah. never think about doing it because they think that it's sales. Yeah, I also didn't have a clue about what it was like at first. Yeah, it, it, it's it like, like, this a, like a pushy thing, but not, no, it's, it's, it's not. <laughs> yeah, no, so explain that. So you thought it was a pushy thing. You kind of were hesitant to yeah. do it because you thought, like anytime we hear about account manager, or whatever we think, oh, it's, it's like selling a car, right? But it's obvious. It's very. It's like a. It, these roles are all liaison roles at the PhD level now. Mm -hmm. So can you talk a little bit more about how it's, how your mindset has changed on the role since getting into it? Right. Well, the, uh, as I would say, I was a bit averse towards sales positions, like maybe before joining the association, mostly because when we are approached by salespeople, sometimes it is to offer us things that we're not particularly interested in, or maybe we feel that they don't really care about us, but they just want our money. But yes. when it comes to being an account manager, it's a lot more about building the relationship with someone that is mutually beneficial. And especially in my case, for example, in at Agilent, we do have a very broad portfolio. So there's a the fun, fun part of it is also when, when you do know well what the different services and products are, 
there is some creative problem solving to it because you mm. um, you have to take into account what your customer cares about or what they want to achieve and then there are possibly different ways to achieve results that would be of you know in their interest but where you can propose different ways to go about it and then adapt to what they feel is better uh, yes yeah, it's, exactly. it's, it's, it has a creative side to it as well very creative. And I love that you brought up problem solving because really when you're thinking about the types of, uh, you know, reagents or instruments or software, mm -hmm. et cetera, that you are going to be responsible for building relationships around in an mm -hmm. account manager role or similar roles, it's about filling a need, solving a problem. All of you right mm -hmm. now, if you're working in a lab or you're TAing or whatever you're doing, you have some sort of problem um, that you're probably already solving with some sort of product or service. And being a liaison or an account manager, which is essentially in a liaison mm -hmm. role, similar to like an application scientist, even yeah. an MSL, et cetera, your job is to uh, help the client who very often could be another PhD or scientist, et cetera, apply mm -hmm. whatever the product or service is to their work. You're helping them solve the problem using what your company has, has created. So, um, that's it, I guess, on a more theor theoretical level. What about on a practical uh -huh. level, Guillaume? What, what, what do you do on a day-to-day -day basis? How's your day chopped up in mm -hmm. terms of meetings, you know, right. in the field, reach out, et cetera? Okay. Well, in, in my case, I'm an inside account manager, so most of my work takes place by, via email, LinkedIn, uh, phone calls, and occasionally also video chats. And... In, in, in this case, we do have a larger customer base yes. and the day is more filled with meetings, which allows you to meet more people and serve more people as well. Whereas the field account managers maybe do spend some more time traveling, which I don't, depends on what you want to do. It's, yes. It might be important to you. And as well as, well, you spend more time and usually it has to do with larger um, deals if it, when it's the case of field sales or uh, field account managers, because these are the ones that require a more well, uh, deep explanation or, yes. or demonstrations, let's say. More personal relationship of, building yeah, too. It's, it's a lot of interacting and really it, it is not that different from the job search project, uh, sorry, uh, the, the jobs, so, uh, job oh, okay. search strategies that we talked about uh, at the association because you're on LinkedIn and you're reaching out to people who do similar things that you care about and you, you, you become true. Well, you need to be interested in what they do and understand it and then offer them help, not, not even thinking about selling anything, just being helpful and giving to others and then they will help you out when with other stuff and, and eventually if there is a service or product that you have that can help them then that might lead into a, an actual business transaction but generally it's about you know understanding what other people are working with and meeting mm. new scientists really <laughs> yeah absolutely and i i, I want to help people understand, I guess, the mm -hmm. framework a bit more. So like what sure. other departments do you work with or what other job titles do you find yourself interacting with frequently and, and in what capacity? Mm -hmm. Right. Then, well, I often interact with product specialists because in, in my role, I cover a, 
a really broad portfolio. So I need, you know, I need to understand what the different instruments we sell to or the accessories and compatibilities are. But if someone wants something very specific about method development, then I will get in touch with a product specialist. If the customer has a problem with uh, something not working properly in their lab, then I might get in touch with the field service engineers who then visit them. And uh, every now and then we do have trainings. I was recently at the Agilent headquarters in Germany. And then we had uh, distributors in there as well who do have a sort of similar role, but they're not exclusively working for Agilent, for example. So you, you do, you need to be in touch with a lot of, of different people and roles within your organization as well. Hmm. No, and I think that's important to understand is that you are a, a central hub in a sense for the, mm -hmm. the developers because you're giving you have the relationships with the customers and the, the yeah. voice of the customer is important mm -hmm. to translate back to those product developers and as a phd yeah, exactly. you are able to do this better than anybody because of your communication mm -hmm. skills at the complex technical level but also at the you know the the normal person level i always mm -hmm. like to say you speak you can speak nerd and normal person and all <laughs> yeah. can do this right um, so as far as getting the job, what did it look like? Did you have a phone screen, video interviews, site visit? Mm -hmm. Can you walk us through how you got hired? Sure. Well, first of all, um, in this case, uh, I applied to the, the, the position was on, on LinkedIn and, I, and it was just a submission of my CV. And then I actually reached out to the, the hiring person who had posted the job, which I would recommend cheekies to do uh, it, it has worked very well for me in, in my job search mm. to send them a message and say oh i saw you, this position open at your company i am i would like to know more about it or some you know, engaging conversation and in in this case uh, i actually did not get to talk to that particular um, hr representative but some time later uh, i had a phone call a phone interview and i think it's crucial that you arrange like mock interviews with the with colleagues or other cheeky scientists because it, it really does make a big difference and even if you practice like your first phone interview is quite likely not to go uh, amazing because you're going to be nervous and it, it happens and mine was quite uncomfortable the first one i had it was terrible but thanks to that, you get to a point where you can act, you're going to feel a lot more comfortable. And that, that was the case. And also, I feel it did help to show my true personality or things that I cared about that we spoke about hobbies and stuff. And then the person interviewing me did like that. And so oh, you should mention that to the, you know, the, yeah. the managers in the final interview. And then, well, humanize that, yourself, humanize yeah. yourself, right? Yeah. But, I mean, of course, you have to act professionally but you know yes. uh, but don't try to pretend to be like a lot more serious or like oh, businessman no just, just <laughs> be yourself yes. yeah and then i had an on-site interview with the manager from the sales team and the pre-sales or marketing team and it was quite friendly they they, they asked me about you know the knowledge i had more more technical about the different instruments that Agilent sells or provides, and then some more behavioral questions. And I did, yeah, they tested how, how well I can interact with other people because that was what the role is about, really. 
Yeah. And after after that, there was a bit of a wait, and finally, I got the news that that I was getting the position, and everything's going great so far. I mean, I started recently, so maybe in some months I could give more detailed yeah, sure. experience about how the job is like, but. Anything, yeah, uh, anything looking back, like a particularly tough interview question or something you wish you would have known along the way, even if it's just what to expect or the timeline that you could share? Mm -hmm. For this, the thing is with, for this particular uh, interview process, everything went really smoothly, but, but uh, this was as a result of practicing, uh, oh yeah, something else that did help with this particular um, process. I reached out to chickies who were in a similar positions. Mm. I did speak to a few that were in sales roles and account managers and I asked them, well, coming from academia, what, what is it that has helped you do well in your current role? And then sometimes you, you do have those qualities, but you're not aware about how important they are going to be in the job because you've never had that job, but, but talking with people who actually have hold those positions, then it can open your eyes to feel more also more secure about yourself because you know, oh, I have this quality too. I can do this. I can do that. I'm good at this because at first what I thought is, oh, I have never sold anything, but you know, I did not sell anything before, but I was delivering workshop trainings at the Autumn yes. Science Institute. So that's really talking to another scientist and helping them overcome their, their scientific challenges, which in a way is what I'm doing now. And, mm -hmm. and then you find which experiences of yours do translate into useful skills that are gonna help you in your job and then communicate that to the employers or the people interviewing you. Because if you don't tell them, they not, might not, not be aware of it just from your CV and it's, it's important to, to be aware of what they're looking for. Yes. Yeah, well said. Well said. Great advice, Guillaume. Thank you very much. And um, uh, for all of you interested in, in an account manager role or similar roles, take a look at it. Take a look. Yeah. We, we, we get the best feedback from people who get into this role. I, well, I would say top three for sure. I love it. Oh, feel free to reach out on LinkedIn, by the way, if you have any questions or would like to know more about the, the role. Uh, Perfect. All right. Great to see you, Guillaume. Thank you very much. Please thank say you. thank you to Guillaume in the chat box if you would. And I wanted to share uh, Guillaume's Thanks. info here real quick. So Guillaume is, he received his BS from Barcelona, followed by his MS from uh, in forensic science in Amsterdam. And then he joined the Netherlands Forensic Institute explosive, uh, explosives team for half a year, which is amazing. Uh, used chromatography to analyze bomb fragments and he got his PhD uh, from Manchester Institute of Biotechnology. Uh, you can reach out to Guillaume at his LinkedIn page, linkedin.com slash IN slash G-U-I-L-L-E-M-B. Thank you very much, Guillaume. Great to see you on. Great uh, LinkedIn profile too. Likewise. Thank you. All right. So we're going to move forward to talk to one of the senior program leaders from Scientist MBA, Ramya Raman who is an MBA PhD, who you see here, talk a little bit about this program. She is a medical science liaison at Exact Sciences and is responsible for medical initiatives there. 
Um, she was previously an MSL at GSK too. Uh, she's also worked as a business consultant since her uh, postdoc. So lots of management experience and she's helped there's over a thousand PhDs now in SMBA. She's helped them get into management level positions and, and skip those entry level positions. So what we're gonna do is we're gonna bring on Ramya now. Um, she's gonna talk a little bit about the Scientist MBA program because enrollment for Scientist MBA is open this week. So there's a special discount all week long for enrolling. Uh, we're gonna bring on Ramya here and ask her a little bit about why it's so important to see yourself as a manager, as a PhD, as opposed to just getting into a job, working side by side with people with, with their bachelors. So hi, Ramya, good to see you. Hi, hi everyone. Thanks for being here, thanks for waiting. Sorry, very uh, packed radio show today. Um, so please say hi to Ramya in the chat box. And Ramya, we've been talking a lot about Scientist MBA this week. Um, you are incredibly active in that group. You've helped a lot of people see themselves as managers. I wanted to ask you kind of more of a, uh, a question in terms of the personal changes that you see in PhDs who get into Scientist MBA and start seeing themselves as strategists, as managers over, you know, technicians. Maybe just pulling from your own experience of seeing yourself more as a manager. What does that change look like? What needs to happen for that, for that change uh, to occur? I think the first thing to do is to realize when you're doing your PhD or your postdoc, you're doing a job. You have a role there. You already are taking on management level experiences during this experience, um, which no other doctorate degree does. And we always short sell ourselves. Um, JDs don't do this. MDs don't do this. But we actually manage people in the lab. We educate people. We take on a project and we manage the project from start to finish. We initiate new projects, we write grants, we get money, we manage money, we manage finances. We're essentially almost running a small business on our own mm. in a lab. Um, no. And so there are so many business level skills that we learn from this. We know how to present to people. We know how to talk to colleagues at conferences. Um, and we're so used to short selling ourselves in everyday life that we don't realize all of these skills add a lot more value in the business world. And it's really of explaining what these are to business-minded individuals, be able to talk to them, be able to network them. And, you know, from my own experience, I've had so many times where I'll be doing an informational interview with someone and they'll be so surprised about my experiences and they'll always be surprised about, oh, you're so social for a scientist. We didn't know PhDs could actually talk. We always thought they liked to be by themselves in the lab. Um, and just explaining what you do as a PhD, what you do in your research, um, that adds a lot of value that we don't really see. Mm. And, you know, what we want to do in the Scientist MBA program is regardless of the role someone's applying for, whether you're doing an R&D role, whether uh, you're doing project management, if you want to be an MSL or application scientist or anything else, you will still need these business-minded roles and be able to think big picture. Mm. Yeah, no, wow, that was really on point. And I, I think that's exactly how you want to reframe uh, yourself and, and how you see your, your value in industry, especially if you have postdoc experience. But, but even if you don't, you, mm -hmm. you've been to school for a long time. You, what I like to say about PhDs is PhDs write the textbooks that MDs learn from. Because you do. PhDs come up with the primary papers that get filtered into these textbooks. 
Uh, so you are doing something at a leadership level, a management level that uh, most people can't even comprehend, let alone, you know, have any experience in. Uh, so as far as MBA level topics, so you got an MBA, what are the topics that, I mean, you could say, I guess you could say all of them, but what are the topics that most PhDs never learn that make the biggest difference once they do learn them, right? Whether it's economics or mergers, acquisitions, et cetera. When do you see PhDs really peak up and peak, you know, uh, perk up in the program and turn a corner when they learned a, a certain MBA foundational topic? You know, I, I think the interesting thing is every MBA um, topic is different and it peaks to every single different person. I know for me personally, um, my love is innovation management, taking a product from the lab to the industry. That is why I got an MBA in the first place. Mm. Um, I know a lot of people are really interested in that, how to write a patent, what the process is. Um, some people are actually interested in the finance aspect of it, what that means, and learning all these new words of how finance and accounting are the same, are different. Um, some people are very into the strategy, especially if they're going to be running for looking into consulting roles. Um, there's a lot of uh, SMBA participants who are looking into case studies and applying for consultancy roles. Um, so that's really something that peaks to their interest and what mm. they want to go into. Um, and I think that's the really interesting thing about the program that we try to cater to everyone's needs. We, um, we have an engineering focus that so we look at engineering case studies and examples that are going on. We do a lot of biotech and pharma focus. Um, mergers and acquisitions, I think is a fun one. A lot of people are interested in um, because that impacts their life. That impacts um, many times a company they're working for either big or small. They might be dealing with that and understanding what to do in that process um, if your company is going through that change. Um, I know Becky does a lot with change management and that's very important. I know I've learned a lot personally from her um, and having to deal with change management in my own organization. Um, so there's really something that speaks to everyone. And I think it's really interesting to hear candidates when they're going through the program, when they finish the certificate, what their aha moment was is always very different. Hmm. Well said. Thank you very much, Ramya. Please thank Ramya in the chat box for coming on with us. For those of you who join SMBA this week, remember that it is accredited. You get continuing education credits in the program. You will get a board back certificate backed by MBAs and PhDs on your training. Uh, again, please thank Rami in the chat box. This takes us to the end of today's radio show. Thank you for watching. Thank you for listening. Uh, as always, remember your value as a PhD and start thinking and acting like a successful industry professional. This takes us to the end of another Cheeky Scientist radio show podcast. Thank you for joining us. If you want to learn more about transitioning into your first or next job in industry, just go to phdsgethired.com. Go to phdsgethired.com. We will send you all of our free training materials that will help you start your job search now or help you take it to the next level in business. As always, remember your value as a PhD and start thinking and acting like a successful industry professional. Pop, pop, wish. Let's <laughs> go.